All right, guys, so the seventh uh, character quality that we want to focus on this morning that's, again, foundational to us making an endeavor to, to man up is going to be the subject of honor. And I think that, though often overlooked sometimes, a major component to being able to build that stable and inspired course in all of our lives is doing what we can to develop the quality of being a man of honor. Now, I'm going to say as a preface, because actually as I was just driving over here this morning, the Lord brought it to my mind uh, that I overlooked it. But if you want to jot in your notes, because it's not on your handout, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. I'm going to hope to tie up our study at the end by referencing that more. But in 2 Timothy 2, verse 20 and 21, there it actually speaks of being a vessel of honor. And I like that phrase, being a vessel of honor, that our lives as men would become vessels whereby we're living in an honorable way and the honor of God is being demonstrated in our life. And as we'll talk about, that we're exercising honor by, by expressing honor in different ways that we should living as men. The word honor really can be defined in those two different ways, which both should be important and we'll talk about. The one way of looking at the word honor is obviously having high respect and great esteem due to something's importance or value, or having high respect and great esteem maybe due to someone's importance or value, and that's one component of honor. And then the other side of honor, of course, is we might call an adherence to doing what's right. In other words, conducting ourselves in a way that's honorable by upholding a standard or a code of proper conduct because we want to live in an honorable way. And we should both be a man of honor in how we conduct ourselves, and we also should very highly take it to be important to be a man who shows proper honor and shows proper respect towards those who are worthy of being honored or just things uh, that are worthy to be honored. So let's talk first about that idea of that we should be a man of honor just in how we conduct ourselves. That is how you and I are living generally, we would try and live in an honorable way. And again, honor describes that firm adherence to what's right. So we might say it's a, it's a standard of proper conduct. It describes carrying out our duty as a man with, we might say, loyalty and reverence and respect and sacrificial dedication towards doing the right thing. And because we know something is right and that it is the right thing to do, that no matter how we feel, no matter what's going on in our life, no matter what personal cost it involves or how difficult, regardless, we will seek to do the right thing because we know that's what's honorable. And we have a code of honor that we somewhat hold ourselves to. Now, though it is not Christian, I understand, one of the highly respected branches of our U.S. military, and rightly so, is the Marine Corps. And it's very interesting to take note, the core values of our Marine Corps in the United States, the core values are these three things, honor, courage, and commitment. And on their website, I'm going to read to you right from their website, on their website it says this, and if you are to become one of us, the idea is a Marine, if you're to become one of us, then they, that is honor, courage, and commitment, will be the values that you live by and fight with as well. They are the building blocks that will aid you in making the right decisions at the right time. 
both on the battlefield and in our nation's communities. And when you read a little further, under the core values specifically of honor itself, you, that, you find this paragraph giving a little more explanation to honor. It says this, honor guides Marines to exemplify the ultimate in ethical and moral behavior. Never lie, never cheat, or steal. Abide by an uncompromising code of integrity. Respect human dignity and respect others. Honor compels Marines to act responsibly, to fulfill our obligations, and to hold ourselves and others accountable for every action. That's pretty good, isn't it? And let me just say, if that is the standard and the code that guides soldiers as a way of operating in the U.S. Marine Corps, can I just say this morning how much more, like Paul the Apostle often says in the New Testament, how much more ought it to be the value that governs and guides our way of thinking as men of God, as godly men, that we would take serious the important virtue of honor. You know, it is interesting that the Bible pictures our spiritual lives as endeavoring to be good soldiers of the Lord Jesus Christ on a spiritual battlefield. You have in your handout there, 2 Timothy, look at it, chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, and look, this is just one of many analogies used in the Word of God to describe the Christian life, and here it's pictured in this way of being a soldier on military duty and an active combat. He says, 2 Timothy 2, verse 3 and 4, you must therefore endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And I like that the Bible puts in that term, a good soldier of Jesus Christ, right? Because in everything in life, you can, you can be a, 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 a pastor or a, a good pastor, you can be an attorney or a good attorney or a bad attorney, a good doctor or a bad doctor. And same thing as a soldier. You can be a soldier, but it doesn't necessarily guarantee you're going to be a good soldier, right? And so he puts that additional adjective in there to clarify. And as he's speaking of this, again, in a spiritual analogy, he exhorts, you must therefore endure hardship. The idea is perseverance. You have to exercise some perseverance to be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Dedication, again, a soldier is never going to make it on the combat zone if when he's out there, he's weak-willed or he gives in to fear or intimidation or tiredness or I'm just too exhausted or my muscles are sore. I mean, none of that is going to be an acceptable thing to be a good soldier. There has to be many of the things even that we've been talking about together, things like discipline and commitment and dedication, right? And, and, and being someone who's going to have conviction, a few things that are kind of non-negotiable. Look, it's non-negotiable. I'm a soldier. I'm a soldier representing the U.S. military and the nation that I fight for. And so you got to have some non-negotiables and be willing to press through and push on. He says, going on in our verses here, look what he says. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that, here's the reason, he may please him who's enlisted him as a soldier. So again, a soldier who's in active combat zone or, or is, is on active duty 
they don't have certain liberties in the same way that traditional civilians do. Right? That's just a part of the, the code of honor and part of the duty that is upon them as a soldier, that if they are on active duty, to a degree, they can't, the way that other people do, become engrossed in certain civilian affairs, not because it's wrong, but because their first duty is to please their, their commanding officer. They have an obligation, a higher standard that they are accountable to and that they hold themselves obligated to, to please their commanding officer who rules over them as an honor-bound thing. And so therefore, they have to choose to forego certain everyday civilian things in order to always be ready and to be willing to set aside what they would prefer or want and do what their commanding officer desires instead. And God uses all that as a spiritual analogy for us. And he says to us, we must seek these men to be good soldiers of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think it's very beautiful because understand where those words come. That's coming from Paul the Apostle as he's writing 2 Timothy to Timothy, his younger protege, a generation below him, and as this older man who with grit and tenacity and a tremendous amount of an honor-bound commitment to Christ and fighting on the battlefield spiritually of, of planting churches and all that Paul did as a tremendous man of God, he's now speaking to Timothy as the next generation, and, and he's exhorting him in this way as a young man. And he's trying to call the man out of the, you know, this younger man and encourage him to step forward, to man up, to embrace really that calling of being a good soldier. And 2 Timothy is Paul's last letter, we believe, written before he passes. And I always love to draw attention to that reality because in 2 Timothy, you basically get, if you would, Paul's dying words. And I love that in 2 Timothy, Paul chooses not to write to a church. He speaks to an individual. And I think that's the Holy Spirit giving us tremendous testimony about something. Because Paul wrote to lots of churches. But the last letter he wrote where he imparted the stuff in his heart that really mattered greatly, and it's a very personal letter, Paul pours all of that out and invests all of that in an individual, which shows the value and the power and the importance of individual ministry. Would to God, what if every one of us in this room here as men just invested powerfully into the life of one other man, one young man, met with one young man, ministered to one young man. You know, I think of, again, just quickly, I don't belabor the subject here of when my daughters were younger, you know, there were a few suitors, gentlemen who came around. They're all married now, of course, uh, but there were a few who uh, tried their best to you know, win over my daughter, and they didn't make the cut. Either my daughter cut them or I cut them. Worked both ways. But I remember one particular young man who, and again, not all these young men necessarily were you know, horrible. They just they didn't meet the standard. They didn't make the cut. It wasn't who God called uh, them to be married to. But I always tried to develop a relationship with every guy that sought to pursue my daughter. Because I had a vested interest. You know, you keep your friends close and your enemies closer, right? Some guys take the approach of, you know, I'm the dad with the shotgun and I'll blow you off the porch. I wanted them to be terrified of me, but I also wanted to be very close with them so that I could invest into them. Because I realized if this could be my future son-in-law, I got a vested interest. Premarital counseling starting on the first day that you show up on my property. And I want to pour into you. And I figured at the end of the day, if they don't end up marrying my daughter, I can make them a better man to go impact and invest 
in the life of some other woman, and I can disciple them and do what I can. And so I really made an effort to do that. And, you know, a very beautiful experience happened out of that where one of the men who my daughter did not end up, uh, you know, pursuing further in a dating relationship, I established a connection with them. When they broke up, I, I realized that he just needed to grow in some ways. And so I said to him, listen, do you have anybody in your life that as older, that's a mature, godly man that's pouring into your life. I just saw we needed some discipleship and some growth. And so I said, look, if you're interested, I said, I'm off work every Monday. He was in Pennsylvania. I said, I'll drive up here and, and I'll meet with you every Monday. And, and let's, just, let's just talk through life and do some things. And so I did that for about a, a few months. I would go up and I would meet with him. Was it a sacrifice? Yeah, but here's the thing. I built a bond with that young man. I was able to pour into his life. And when he ended up getting married to someone else and had his first child, he sent me a picture of the ultrasound, right? The little ultrasound picture. And he said to me, and, and he has a father. He has a biological father, Christian family. And so this is what I'm trying to emphasize. He sent me a picture of the ultrasound. He said, because of how much you invested in my life, I felt like you were the first man that I would want to share this with. I almost started bawling my eyes out when I got the text. I was like, holy smokes. <laughs> I mean, I hadn't talked to him in probably about a good year at that point. I mean, we weren't interacting as regularly. And I just thought to myself, wow, that's, that's the testimony. And I'm not trying to be a hero of my story, but that's the testimony I'm trying to illustrate of pouring into the life of just one person. Maybe one younger man chronologically, one younger man spiritually. Oftentimes, you know, we, we, we love to talk in front of a group. But what about coffee or lunch or just pouring into one person, whether it's through phone calls or just the value of that is huge. And it's something we're losing in our generation, right? In prior years, we apprenticed with work. You worked next to somebody, and that was how you learned to do jobs, right? Now we, you got to spend $100,000 and get an education <laughs> to how to do certain jobs. Or back in the day, it was free. It was just work with me every day, son. And you learned how to do stuff that way. Uh, and there, I think there was great value in that. And I think spiritually, it would do us a great deal of benefit if, like Paul, we were you know, really exhorting the younger generation, just someone or a few in our life. And we've all been deployed as men. The picture is on a moral and spiritual battlefield, and there's an active war happening. And we have a responsibility, guys, to serve and to protect and to defend things that are valuable and noble and important that matter to God and the soldiers, we can't be weak-willed or disconnected, not paying attention or cowardly in our duty. We have to be directed by honor and be good soldiers, good soldiers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And may we be men who operate like soldiers do, again, with that honor-bound commitment. And honor is just loyally carrying out our duty so we don't disgrace ourselves or we don't dishonor our post or our position because we didn't honor what's been important and given to us as a charge. And isn't it interesting, the highest military award is called what, the Medal of, isn't that interesting? The highest military award, the Medal of Honor, given to that person who displays great courage to sacrifice themselves for a higher cause in the face of severe danger or a time of real difficulty, that they honor something above themselves, they honor something above their own safety or their own comfort, those are the ones who get that medal of honor. And can I say by way of a application to that, the same should be true for us spiritually. We should see and sense something higher than ourselves 
to honor. And that's why I put in your notes there, Ephesians 4 and 1 Thessalonians 2, 12. Ephesians 4, 1, look at it. Paul says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. See the idea there? Honoring something more important than just ourselves, our feelings, our preferences, our desires, our passions, our ideas. He says, live a life as a Christian man, a soldier for Christ, live a life worthy, worthy of the calling you've received. You've been called to be a servant of Jesus. You've been called to be a servant of a king. And so he says, live worthy of that. There's a, there's a worthy way to live in relation to that calling, and we want to live worthy of it and not be living unworthy of the high calling that we've been given. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 12 says, look, walk in a manner worthy of God. Living in a way where we're walking out our life in a manner that, that it's worthy of God who calls you to his own kingdom and glory. So we want to have that higher standard that we hold ourselves to. Again, if Marines do this, how much more as soldiers of our Lord Jesus Christ is it a wonderful thing as men if we have a sense of honor that governs our will and that we periodically ask ourselves, am I conducting myself in an honorable way? Am I doing that? Am I holding myself to an ideal, to a standard? And I'm not talking about being legalistic. I'm talking about a sense of being honor-bound. That's all I'm describing, that I hold myself to a higher standard, a higher ethic in regards to fulfilling my obligations, acting responsibly. Again, if I could use the analogy, it's kind of fading in our culture today, but you know, we, back in the yesteryear, you know, being like a knight, right? Knights had like an honor code, and that's what knights were recognized for, that they had this sense of honor, this, this real strong conviction. They lived according to a certain code of honor, and they would do anything to the death because they held honor as so important, and it was just kind of a, a beautiful picture. And as men, is our personal morality and our way of living characterized by living honorably in the way that we conduct our moral lives? You know, one of the great areas that applies certainly is in the area of just our moral purity and our sexual purity which is very important for us as men with strong passions and, and the battles that go on for lust in our lives. That's why Paul says, look at it there in your notes, First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 and 5, 3 through 5. For this is the will of God. How many times do Christians say, I wonder what God's will is for my life? What's, would you pray? I want to know what God's will is for my life. Well, there's a few occasions in the Bible where the word of God specifically says, this is will of God. So my mentality is let's start with the revealed will of God. And if we're doing the revealed will of God, then we'll be able to better figure out the unrevealed will of God of all the little secondary things, specific things. Which job should I work? Should I do this? Should I live there? Should I buy this? Start with the revealed will of God. God's word is the revealed will of God. And then in that, on top of it, there are a few select scriptures. This is one of them where the Holy Spirit says, you don't even have to question here. This is the will of God. If you want to do God's will, your sanctification that we might be set apart for holy set apart living that you should abstain 
from sexual immorality, any form of inappropriate sexual behavior, whether that's sex outside of your marriage, whether that is homosexual behavior, whether that is pornography, whatever. You, you can pick your poison. There are many that fall into the category of anything outside of God's design for sexual expression between a man and a woman in the boundary of a marriage relationship with a lifelong partnership, and God says, abstain from it. Now, again, can I bring to your attention, the word abstain means that you have a desire to do something, but you refrain from engaging the desire. So let's not be foolish here. God says, all I'm asking, I know you have a hunger. I know you may have appetites. Sometimes they're legitimate appetites and desires when you're single, when you're younger and your sexual passions, which God have given to you, are arising and hormones are there and chemistry is happening and you're longing for sexual fulfillment, that's totally normal. God created the sex drive, but God just says you have to be able to abstain from that desire until you have the proper context and boundaries to express it for fulfillment. And so God says, the desire is there, but abstain from any form of inappropriate behavior. In the same way, you know, people kid themselves. They try and act like, oh, if I just get married, I'll stop struggling with sexual temptation. Look, you can get married and be blessed with a wife that has sex with you seven days a week, and you'll still struggle with sexual temptation. It's one of those unsatisfied desires that men just perpetually struggle with. The benefit, I can tell you this, at this stage of life is as you get older, biology starts helping slow it down a little bit. And that's a, it's a great gift in some ways. But it is something that we're to abstain from out of willing to do God's will. He says, going on, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification. There's our word, and honor. That is, we realize my body is to be used in an honorable way. I have to exercise self-control. Look what he says, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles, pagan, unsaved people who don't know God. So we don't measure our standard. Oh, I mean, I'm not doing bad compared to what all the pigs, the guys I know, do out in the world. I mean, I'm just, I'm just doing this. Or I'm, I'm, that's not the standard. God's word is the standard. God's will is the standard. And God says self-control with our bodies is something to be developed and to be learned. It's our responsibility, this vessel that God has given to us, is a vessel of honor. We're to use it in that way, and we are to channel our desires and control our desires. And he said, each of you should know how to possess his own vessel. We have to learn how to do that, to learn how to manage that. And God holds us responsible for that, and really it just becomes something where because we have an honorable heart attitude and, and a standard of honor, we choose to refrain from desires that are there and only exercise them as God would ordain in an appropriate way. So may we as men be honor-bound, again, with that sense of obligation to rise up, discharge our duties well, holding ourselves to that standard, that higher standard, worthy of God, living in that way, despite, again, what it requires of us, and that we'd simply do it, guys, because we just know it's the right thing and it's our duty. And that we would be bound by honor to do what's right, 
whether we are alone, whether no one's looking. I found this quote, and I find it fantastic. It's from a man, Thomas McCulley, and listen, it's from the 1800s. You know, so wonderful sometimes to reach back and hear what two, three, four hundred years ago people said. And listen to this statement. This is a fantastic statement. He says, the measurement of a man's real character is what he would do if he knew he would never be found out. Let me say that again. The measurement of a man's real character is what he would do if he knew he would never be found out. That's a good picture of honor right there. That honor says, even if I could get away with it, even if I know nobody would ever know, I, I, I just can't do that because it's dishonorable. And, and that honor would hold that heart in that place where it would only do the honorable thing. Now, the other side of honor, as I mentioned at the beginning, not just living honorably, but honor is also about showing proper honor where we should or to whom we should. And there are numerous different places God's word describes where we should show honor. And I want to use the balance of our time to kind of touch upon that. Another substitute word for honor, of course, is going to be the term respect. And so you could use those two terms interchangeably, that we should be men who show proper respect, men who show proper honor, respectful, and show that proper respect and honor, certainly towards God, towards women. And again, these are some of the things I want to try and point out. Romans chapter 13, verse 7, I put in your notes there because this is sort of the first, I think, exhortation to some degree we could think about, and then we'll talk about some different areas. Look what God commands here in this verse. He commands everyone to give to everyone what you owe them. So now we're talking about an obligation, like a debt, that we should satisfy, something that we owe others. And then he says, give to everyone what you owe them, respect to whom respect is owed. If for nothing else from what I said earlier, grab the ear of a young man or two in your life, particularly in a younger generation that's now growing up, and say to them, you give respect where respect is owed. That's proper young man. You give honor to people to whom honor is owed. How wonderful society would be if that would be something that we would maintain in our culture. There are certain people, God says, that deserve our respect, and we should give them that honorable respect when we relate to them. That's what's noble and right, and to not do that is dishonorable. To not do that is what we often call disrespectful to be disrespectful. So let's talk about some people, some places, some areas where God's word directs us we should show honor, those who we should show honor to. The first and foremost, which certainly should be first, is that the Bible teaches clearly that we should show honor toward God. I mean, that should be an unspoken, obvious one, but that we should exhibit honor the best we can toward God as our creator, as well as towards Jesus as our Lord and Savior. 1 Samuel 2.30, it's in your notes there. Look at it. The Lord declares, those who honor me, I will honor. There's a great little Bible memorization verse. If you're one of those people like myself, you don't have the greatest memory skills, that's only 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. It can count at least. Eight words. There's a great Bible memory verse to start with. Those who honor me, I will honor. 
I don't know about you. I want God to honor me in my life. The idea is God will honor us in a sense. He'll give us help. He'll give us special favor. He'll go before us. He'll open doors. He'll bless our endeavors. He'll help us when we're in tough spots. The idea is that, that he'll be willing to do things for us that we need him to do for us in different ways. And where does God, God says, that begins with this. You just honor me. And God says, those who honor me, I'll make sure to honor them on the earth. And so what a great place to start. I am just going to live my life above everything else, just saying, you know what? In everything I do, my highest motivation is going to be, I always want to honor the Lord. I always want to honor God. You know, there have been a few occasions, not many, I'm very, very strongly convicted about the value of listening to the men that God raises up around me and taking their counsel and receiving their input and making well-informed decisions and staying accountable. But there have been a few rare occasions when I have chosen to step forward and beyond, for example, maybe what my you know, uh, board of overseers or the other leaders in the church have kind of advised to do. And I can tell you this, those few rare occasions have been when I felt like they were acquiescing and they were making a concession to honor their feelings or what everybody else wanted, or they were afraid to do the right thing because it was gonna be hard. And, and in that moment, I said, look, I am, I am bound to honor the Lord. And as the senior pastor, I am going to do that because the word of God says this is the way we're supposed to handle this. And so we're going to do it this way. And whether you're with me or not, you're going to have to kill me before I don't do it. <laughs> and again, because I, I take very seriously, we are called to, and I just trust, Lord, I'm going to honor you. So honor me and hopefully they won't kill me. <laughs> I'm, but I'm going to do what honors you. And I tell you guys, it's a great motivator to live your life by in every facet. John chapter 5, verse 23, again, verses that give more of this understanding to us. Jesus said that all that honor the Son, or all should honor the Son, excuse me, just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. 1 Timothy 1, verse 17, look, to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible God, to who alone is wise, be what? Honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. When we go over to the book of Revelation, we see worship happening around the throne of God in the eternal dimension where there's what? The absence of sin. Nobody's mind is polluted. Nobody's distracted in heaven by worldly things. Everybody is laser focused on what's right, what matters, there's no confusion, and look what's going on around the throne of God in heaven. Revelation chapter 4, verse 9 through 11, it's in your handout. Whenever the living creatures give glory, now this is the angelic creatures, what are they doing? Giving glory, giving honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders, a symbolic picture of the church, the saints, fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Notice, in the eternal dimension, there'll be this constant awareness again and again and again and again and again all throughout the eternal dimension for all of eternity where there's that constant recognition, Lord, you are worthy of this. 
you're worthy of the highest honor, the highest glory, and just that, that heart of giving honor in the form of expressing worship at the foot of the throne of an incredible king. Nothing saddens me more than to see people who profess to be Christians who have no real passion to worship. Something's very backwards about that. And sometimes I think this becomes a little bit more of a struggle with men because men, for some reason, you know, well, I don't want to seem soft or I don't want to seem weak or I don't, I don't want to sing in public or raise my hands or lift my hands to the Lord. That's called pride. You think you're going to do that when you go to heaven? I'm not saying you're not going to be saved. God will take you home even if you're a stubborn ox by your faith alone. But trust me, you're not going to be doing that in heaven. When you get rid of that earthly body and your male bravado, you're going to fall on your face <laughs> and cast your crown. And like everybody else, you're going to be singing really loud. And you're going to be saying, Lord, you are worthy of honor and glory. And again, what a beautiful picture to realize that is what's going on in heaven. And look, we should be preparing for heaven now, man. We should be giving him the honor he deserves now. Revelation 19.1 says, After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power. Here he uses the word, belong to our Lord. This belongs to the Lord. He deserves it. It, it. We shouldn't keep it from him because honor belongs to him. And it's owed to him for who he is. He's worthy of it. Malachi 1.6, our final verse regarding honoring God, look what God himself says. He asks this question, where is my honor? Where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts? Well, that's kind of sad, isn't it, to think that God would have to say that, that God would say, man, where's my honor? Where's the honor that I deserve as who I am and what I've done for humanity? Where's, where's reverence being shown towards me? You know, what a beautiful thing to, to recognize. And look, let me say to you gentlemen who are here this morning and come here early Saturday after Saturday, and for those of you who came on the first week when I talked about, do you remember? Commitment. <laughs> and now you're here the, the seventh time after seven months, and you've stayed the course. What an honorable thing. And that I hope that above all else, one of the reasons you're doing it is because you want to honor God. And you want to be the man that God wants you to be. And so in wanting to honor God, you know what? I don't feel like dragging my stinking carcass out of bed on a Sunday morning. But you know what? I, I want to honor God. So I want to do this because I want to honor God. And what a beautiful thing to have a heart. Nothing thrills my heart more than to see, again, that, that, that beautiful thing and God having his question answered. Where's my, where's, man, where's my honor? Because I think God's blessed when he sees it. Oh, that's awesome. Look at that. He's honoring me. So proud of my son. He's honoring me in that situation. And I think it's also got to be really heartbreaking to God where at times God looks at others or maybe other men. And I'm not trying to be critical. I'm just being candid and realistic where God goes, man, where's my honor in that guy's life? So sad. He honors this and he participates in that, but boy, his level of commitment to honoring me is sadly pretty insignificant. And how God must be saddened by that because he's God, he's awesome, man, right? He's worthy of our honor and that we would get a glimpse of that. So certainly we should always give honor to God. 
A secondary area the Bible teaches that we should also be exercising honor is that we should be honoring our parents. Exodus 20, verse 12, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is given you. Again, the same truth is repeated in the New Testament and expanded in other ways. Ephesians 6, verse 1 through 3, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right, which means this, when they're not obeying you, it's wrong. And they need to understand that. I'm not spanking you, or I'm not disciplining you, or I'm not upset with you because I'm frustrated. I can't let you do what's wrong because I'm basically permitting you to sin against God. And I want to teach you and help you not to do that. (laughs) I don't want you to be sinning against God. You're not just sinning against me by not listening to me. And so again, he says, this is right, obedience to parents, to the authority that God sets up in the home life for their welfare and their benefit, the way God set things up. And then he says, again, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. So again, the word of God's very clear that we are to honor our parents, certainly when the child is young, still living under the authority and the boundaries and the headship of the parental authority living in the home still. But even as we grow and we mature, and even if we become independent adults, again, that recognition that, you know what, these people my mother, my father, they poured two decades, probably at least, into my life, sacrificing and working and giving up sleep and, and, you know, and, and doing all that they did to try and keep me alive and make me a decent human being. And so, you know what? I have an, I should honor them for who they are and that I should seek to honor them from my heart and show them that honor simply because of the role they've played. And again, whether good parents, bad parents, I'm not here to debate all that. The Bible just says that there's an honor due in that situation. And that should, that should compel us to relate to them and treat to them in certain ways, even as the you know, course kind of goes further, that we'd always feel that sense of, hey, I, I, I owe honor to my parents, and I want to honor them in this way simply because of who they are and how we can exercise that in our lives. A third area the Bible clearly teaches that we are to honor individuals is the Bible teaches that we are to honor those who are older. That is, those who are older than us or elderly, we might say, in the society out of respect. Look what Leviticus 19 tells us. Leviticus 19.32, stand up in the presence of the aged. Show respect and honor for the elderly. That was a part of the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law. That they literally, if an older person walked past, an elderly person, an aged person, they had such a honor-bound heart towards them, they would stand up out of honor and reverence. You know, just like when a, a judge comes out to the bench, right, and, and all rise. And that, that's kind of the idea there. That person's worthy of honor and that we should, I think, have a heart attitude and let us implement into a culture that's becoming a throwaway society, not only with unborn babies, but also with the aged and the elderly, that we would honor those individuals and realize they've served their time and that we would show due respect to them, the way we relate to them. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. And that we would just relate in a way that's very honorable. Fourthly, God's word also teaches that we should honor widows and orphans. First Timothy 5, James chapter 1, these are passages that address honoring widows and orphans, those vulnerable. A fifth area, it's in your notes there, that we should show honor and respect is towards the authority of civil leaders. 
and those in civil positions of authority. So, of course, that would be government, but it also would be our police force, which are very crucial in our society. Romans chapter 13 speaks greatly about this. Let everyone, look at it, be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. God's allowed and permitted that authority to be with them, to be exercised. And he says, the authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority. So if you want to rebel against the authority of the police system, Whoever rebels against that is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Boy, how clear is that? Oh, look at this. Well, that guy's resisting arrest. He was told to stand still and put his arms behind his back. Now, I know this is probably going to get me in trouble, and, and that's fine. I don't care. I was a police chaplain for six years. I have a little bit of a camaraderie in that direction. You're given a directive, you submit to it, peacefully, cooperatively. You shut your mouth, you respond appropriately. That's called the law, and that diminishes any need for anything. Look, I know there are bad cops, just like there are mostly all good cops, just like there are bad pastors, and hopefully most of them are decent pastors. They exist everywhere. But by and large, what God has instituted is for the welfare and the safety of everyone involved. If society wasn't broken and people didn't behave wrongly, you wouldn't need a police force. The reality is, is we do need it for our safety and our welfare and to keep society orderly. And all of us at times step out of bounds. And so he says, those who are rebelling against the authority of law enforcement, they bring judgment upon themselves. You're bringing the judgment upon yourself if you're, listen, rebelling against. God says, just cooperate. It's a God-ordained authority instituted in the society for an important purpose. Verse 3, he goes on to say, for rulers hold no terror for those who do right, Look, but for those who do wrong. So again, if you're doing what's right, you don't have to be afraid of the cops. If you're driving the speed limit, you're not looking over your shoulder, <laughs> wondering if you're going to get lit up, right? It's if you realize you look down and you're, and you're going 78 miles an hour, you go, whoa, did I just blow by a cop? So he says, if you're doing right, you don't, but it's for those who are doing what's wrong. So he says there going on, do you want to be free from fear of one in authority? Do what's right, and you'll be commended. They're not going to hassle you if you're just doing what's right. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. Some translations render that God's minister. Try this next time you get pulled over when you're speeding, because that's probably how it happens to most of us. They pull over, they come over, you roll down your window. Um, can I see your license and registration? Read what their little badge says. Maybe it's Johnson. Yes, Minister Johnson. They're God's minister. They're God's servant. Again, but certainly in the attitude of respect and honor, makes a whole world of difference when you're very honorable. You know, not too long ago, I was driving home from church here, it was after a board meeting. We were here late. It was like close to 10 o'clock at night, and I'm driving home. I'm tired. I'm going to, you know, back way home over there, and I rolled through a stop sign, so they say. I probably did, but I, all of a sudden, I realize I'm getting lit up, and I'm, of course, the first thing you do, thanks, Lord. Here I'm out doing your work, 10 o'clock at night. 
been 14 hour day and now I'm going to get a 180 hour ticket. What did I, I knew I wasn't speeding. I was going down a little tiny backside route, pulled over, you know, tried to be, you know, gracious. What are you doing? Answered, but I just tried to be real gracious in my attitude. And he was very gracious with me. He said, where are you coming from? Told him all that. Just nice little conversation. And at the end of the time, you know, I, I just, he told me he was just giving me a warning. I didn't manipulate him on the front end, just, just so you know. Told me he's just going to give me a warning. Hey, just be careful. Just, you know. And I said to him afterwards, I said, sir, before you go away, can I say something? I said, thank you so much for what you're doing. And I said, I appreciate the fact that you're holding me accountable right now because I did what was wrong. And I said, I know some of what you experienced. I've never been a police officer. I said I was a chaplain for six years supporting a police department. And I said, I really appreciate what you're doing. You're out here at night. It's dark. And, and, you're, and I, I just want to say thank you for what you're doing. You could tell he just was like blown away by that, by just a few words to just show honor and appreciation. Because typically, and look, we're seeing what we're, we are in our generation, right, guys? They're getting way of the opposite to an extreme to a very unhealthy extreme. You know, the whole defund the police movement and all of this kind of stuff and painting them out to be horrible people. I mean, it actually is disgusting, and it's stupidity. It's just complete stupidity. There's no other word to describe it, whether that sounds dishonorable or not. It's just the truth. Verse 5, he says, Therefore, it is necessary to submit to authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience, this also is why you pay taxes. Ugh. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe them taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. So again, God's word is very clear in regards to this area. The Bible also teaches we're to show honor to one another relationally. That is just relating to each other in an honorable way, just as comrades and brothers and sisters in Christ. Romans 12 tells us be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Philippians 2 emphasizes the same principle of just honoring people over ourselves, showing honor to someone else. That is deferring to each other out of love and honor to one another. Another area that the scripture instructs that we should be honoring is that the Bible teaches we should honor faithful spiritual leaders. And I incorporated two verses there that express that. 1 Timothy 5, verse 17. Hebrews 13, verse 17. Encourage honoring and obeying spiritual leaders, elders, overseers, God that puts into our life and within the body of Christ who are caring for us, that we should be submissive and cooperative, giving them the honor that they rightly deserve. Now, a final area that God's word tells us that we should honor, and I want to kind of land things here on this, is that God's word commands us as men that we should honor our wives and that we should honor women and respect women generally. Treating them with respect. Here's the key, guys. Being gentlemen. That as honor-bound men, we would be gentlemen, treating women like ladies, treating a lady like a lady, respecting their purity, their vulnerability. 1 Timothy 5 verse 2 says this, look what he says, relate to older women as mothers and younger women as sisters with all purity. And how awesome and wonderful would it be if as men 
Women who were older than us, we treated them like they were our mom. You're not going to let somebody mistreat your mom, right? That if we related to older women respectfully and honorably like we were relating to our mother and women who are our age or younger sisters, that, that, that we honored their purity by looking upon them like they were our sister. And look, I don't know what guy, other than someone who's very twisted and distorted in his brain, would want to be sexually inappropriate with his sister. That's disgusting, right? We call that incest. And so God says, as men, we should relate to women around us our age and younger than us as if that's my sister. Man, to think about her that way or to do this with her, that, that would be gross. That would be dishonorable in God's sight and dishonoring her again. So again, cherishing them, respecting their purity as a more delicate gender, honoring their fragility as ladies, showing we care about them through servanthood. Ephesians 5 tells husbands to cherish their wives. When I'm doing premarital counseling with couples, I always, this is one of the things I reference with the, the gentlemen as I kind of bring them through four different things I see as the primary roles of a husband, and this is one of them, is that they, they're to treat their wives tenderly. To treat their wives tenderly. The Bible says to cherish are wise. When you cherish something, the idea is this is something very valuable, it's important, it's delicate, so you treat it with special care, right? If, if your mother had like an expensive uh, decoration or vase and you were eight and your brother was 10, you don't go outside and play tackle football with your mom's expensive vase, right? That's to be treated delicately. It's special, it's valuable, it's fragile. You don't roughhouse with that. You're very careful in the way you treat it, tenderly and carefully, and, and you show proper respect to it because of its value. And the Bible says we're to cherish our wives, to see them as super important, valuable, special, gentle treatment, showing sensitivity, honoring their fragility as a lady, being delicate and sensitive, and esteeming them as valuable and I tell you, gentlemen, that is part of our role and responsibility as men. I listen to the way guys sometimes talk to their wives, and, and I've even a few times in a, in a counseling conversation kind of called out a brother or two of a meeting with a couple and, and, and had to say, look, you can't speak to her like that, man. Like, you, maybe you could talk like that to another brother in the Lord, or, you know, guys banter back and forth. We don't take stuff sensitively and, and, and take... And guys just, you know, we could say stuff, get... I mean, guys punch each other in the face, right? And then afterwards they get, all right, it's done, bro. Yeah, it's done. <laughs> and, and women look at that, how do you do that? I would be upset for three years, right? And it's just a, it's a different gender. But the problem is, is when men relate to women like they're men, that's a horrible. Our wives are, are delicate in spirit and they're ladies, and they have a more gentle constitution, no matter what kind of airs they put on outwardly, they're a lady. That's somebody's daughter, man. That's some guy's sister. And so we should relate to them in a way where we cherish them and treat them special. And again, I always point out this idea of cherish. The idea is kind of like princess treatment. Your wife deserves some princess treatment. I don't know any woman, bring your wife to me. I don't know any woman that would say, I can't stand it. My husband treats me like such a princess. 
I, it just drives me nuts. He's always blessing me and spoiling me. It drives me crazy. He just treats me like a princess, right? Because that's what they deserve. They're worthy to be honored and cherished. And we want to treat them in that way. 1 Peter 3, 7 commands us as men that this should be practiced towards our wives. But let me just say, gentlemen, I think, and if you're unmarried, this is the way we should relate to all ladies generally as well. I think the principle holds well. It's a command to husbands. But if you're a single guy, a young guy, relating to ladies generally, look what he says. Husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife. There's our term, giving honor to the wife as the weaker vessel, being heirs together of the grace of life. And then here's God's loving threat that your prayers may not be hindered. Ouch! <laughs> you didn't say that to the wife, that her prayers ain't going to be hindered. God says, you're my son, I expect more of you. You're a man. Man up and do what's right, God says. And here God tells us as husbands, we're to relate with our wives with understanding. That is, we're to understand our wives. Not just understand women, that's one thing. But I need to understand my wife, because my wife may not be like your wife. She has a unique set of temperaments and likes and dislikes. I need to know what makes her tick, and I also need to know what ticks her off. I need to know my wife. And I, at times, need to recognize, look, that may work with your wife. That wouldn't work with my wife. And God calls us to make our wife our lifelong, listen, your lifelong research project. That's what your wife should be. You should be, and I've been studying my wife for almost 30 years. And I still haven't got a degree. I go through doors sometimes. I tell her, and I say, but I had no idea there were three more doors on the other side of that. And we're to know our wives and to take it serious and to not be disconnected, but to realize our job is to get to know our wife because how else are you going to help her if you don't know her? How else are you going to understand how to bless her and relate to her in the best way possible to support her and love her and cherish her and care for her and bring happiness to her and lay down your life and love her as Christ loves the church if you don't know, listen, her. Not women, that you don't know her. Understand your wife so that you can honor her in the way that you relate to her. And he says, treating her as the weaker vessel. I didn't say that. God said that. It has nothing to do with inferiority. It has to do with a weaker vessel. Right? M my wife is not physically as strong as I am. She is a weaker vessel. I am never going to make my wife do something that I should be doing as a man. She's a weaker vessel. I have more physical strength, more physical stamina. I was created as a man. I'm not going to subject her to do things that I should be doing as a man. I'm going to step forward and shield her from that emotionally. My wife can't bear at times some of the same weight that I can as a man. So at times, I shield my wife and I shield her heart and I step in and I take care of things so that she doesn't have to be crushed by the weight of something that just may be a little too heavy for her and just may overwhelm her. And to me, I see that as an honorable thing in a knightly way as a gentleman that I shield her and protect her. And God says, when we don't honor our wives... God says, I'm not going to honor your requests, son. I'll hinder your prayer life. And I could totally relate to that. I am a father now, and as a father now, you know, I have three married daughters, son-in-laws, and look, 
all my son-in-law, they could probably take me if it really got into it, maybe. <laughs> but, but I can tell you this, when they were dating my daughters, and even now that they're married to my daughters, if they treated my daughters badly, they would still be my son-in-law, but our relationship would not be very good. And I would not be very favorable towards them. And see, our wives and all women are God's daughters. And so if I treat God's daughter, even if she's my wife, badly, God says, you're still my son. But things ain't going to be good between you and I relationally until you start treating my daughter different. And you honor her the way that you should. You know, may God give us the grace to do what that requires. 2 Timothy 2, 20 and 21, let me just finish with reading it to you. It says this, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, permanent, valuable vessels of usefulness, but also of wood and clay, temporary vessels that are used for a while, and then they're no longer usable anymore. Some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. God says, seek to be a vessel of honor because you'll then be prepared and you'll be useful for all the things that God wants to do through your life. Let's stand together, guys. Let's pray. Father, we ask for the grace of God and the supernatural help of your Holy Spirit to be men of honor, to be able to live honorably and to express honor and respect appropriately in all the ways that we should. Lord, give us grace. We know that we have failed numerous times, Lord, but we pray that you would, by the Spirit of God and the grace of God, help us to walk worthy of this calling we've received as your sons. And we ask this expectantly in Jesus' name. And all the brothers said, amen, amen. God bless you guys. Have a great resurrection weekend if I don't see some of you.